As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Football Show. The Athletic Football Show. Fun show for you guys today. Jeff Zarebeck is going to be joining us a little bit later, our Ravens writer, to do our Baltimore team visit heading into the playoffs. Feels like a team we haven't talked a lot about because they've just been beating up on really bad teams. Felt like it was a good time to kind of revisit the Ravens as they prepare to play the Titans. Before we do that, though, I wanted to do a wrap-up podcast for the 2020 season. When I was at the Ringer, I used to do a piece each year that was the lessons we'd learned from the season. I'm not doing that in a written form this year, so I wanted to do it on a podcast, and I felt like the person who could help give us the best perspective on what the 2020 season was and the takeaways we should have from it is my good buddy, Bill Barnwell. Bill, how are you? Always excited to teach some lessons, Mace. Thank you for... You've taught me many, many lessons in my time, so I felt like it would be good to kind of give back and allow you to teach everyone else those lessons because I think I'm going to teach you another lesson today. I'm sure you will. So we each picked three. I'm sure we'll get into some smaller ones as we have this discussion. But okay. why don't you just start us off? If you were just kind of listening off, the first thing you're going to take away and learn from this football season, what would it be? My first lesson for 2020 is that we don't know anywhere near as much about quarterbacks as we think we do. And I think that's totally fair because mine is very similar to that. So continue. Well, what's yours? Mine is that we have to reevaluate the way we think about, talk about, project raw quarterback prospects. Okay. You and start. I think that, I, I'm going to build off that, I think. You go first. Okay. Well, that's so that's mine. And I think that if you look at, obviously, the person who's at the center of that is Josh Allen mm-hmm. and what he has been this year. And he hasn't just worked out. He's turned into one of the most dangerous, efficient quarterbacks in the entire NFL and turned the Bills into a legitimate Super Bowl contender. I mean, this is not a sneak into the playoffs, let's see what happens sort of team. And I'll admit that I was wrong about Josh Allen coming into the draft. I'll admit that I made the same amount of jokes that everyone else was making about Josh Allen because we had seen versions of Josh Allen fail so many times before. Mm -hmm. And we had seen teams and organizations become enamored with people that possess Josh Allen's skill set. These big, strong, athletic, 
inaccurate quarterbacks. And that's what Josh Allen was in college. Josh Allen felt like Jake Locker 2.0 in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And now Josh Allen has become a full-blown superstar. And then that emergence comes on the heels of what Patrick Mahomes was in college and what Patrick Mahomes is now. Slightly different, but still somebody where you had to look at the ball of clay and imagine something out of it. And I think that Justin Herbert falls into a similar category of quarterback. Big, Mm -hmm. strong-armed guy that required some imagination. And I think that there is more to be learned in that imagination now. And we have to step back and consider what that is in ways that we might not have 10 years ago. I think there are a lot of reasons for that, but we can get into that. So how does yours piggyback off that? Well, let me ask you about this first, because I think you, you brought up Jake Locker, and I think that's a good quarterback to discuss. It can be Jake Locker. It could be Blake Bortles. And it could be guys in that vein. Does it change the way you view them in hindsight, where you sit there and say, hey, if they had ended up in the same place Josh Allen had ended up, where it was a supportive system, an offensive coordinator who played to his strengths, a receiving core that had a, you know, not just a legit number one wideout because Blake Bortles had that, but a, a legit, you know, top five, top six receiving core, a very solid offensive line. A complimentary group of skill position players. The way Every, I would everything. Describe it. Yeah, but like, yeah. like the end of that, not to take away from Josh Allen, but he has everything you would want for a young quarterback. So obviously not every quarterback prospect is the same, but do you look back at those guys like Jake Locker and Blake Bortles, where we're so easy to say, oh, they were bust, they were never going to succeed, and look back and say, well, you know, at least some some product of them not succeeding is what they had around them. And if they had the right people around them, they could have been a Josh Allen level success. So I think this is the challenge. It's one, not lumping everyone into the same category, but also at the same time, not going so far the other direction where you're saying, well, all of these things were so specific. How can you recreate that? Because I think if you live on either one of those poles, you're going to miss the next one of these guys. So I feel like it's not as simple as saying if you dropped Blake Bortles or Jake Locker or whoever onto the Bills right now, they would be as successful because I think there are specific elements of Josh Allen's development Mm -hmm. that are specific to Josh Allen. I think that the coach that he has has been very good for him, not just from a let's build the offense this way, but from bringing him along, finding specific things about Josh's game that allowed him to succeed. I think that's what Dable's strength has been, is really tapping into who his players are and trying to mold the offense around them in that way. I also think that Josh is Josh came into the league as somebody whose physical profile would probably lend people to talk about him as like oafish and big and like he he's probably not a very smart guy. I think he's, that would probably be a conclusion. He's a big boy. Yes. Just- and that, that yes. And he's not that. He he is a smart guy and he is a thoughtful guy and he is somebody whose improvement and development was extremely important to him. And that's something that we will never be able to know without talking to these guys, knowing what their makeup is. You can't just say all, you know, Josh Allen teaches us that raw quarterbacks can succeed. Josh Allen teaches us that raw quarterbacks who are wired like Josh Allen can succeed. And I think that's important. So I didn't really answer your question. I just think that it's, you can't go to either extreme because again, you're going to miss stuff in the middle. And I think that's what matters here. Well, remember with Bortles, right? I mean, he was a guy who came into the league with questionable mechanics. The Jaguars said, okay, we're going to let him sit his entire rookie year. We're going to have him develop on the side. And then week three, they brought him in. And (laughs) that did not go great. But then he changed his mechanics and had a 
better sophomore season, overrated, um, but a better sophomore season, certainly as a full-time starter. And then by like the end of year three, his throwing motion looked like he was um, a pitcher from the 1920s. Like he was totally out of whack. And I think Josh Allen has made strides on his mechanics, but I think what's different about Allen versus Bortles is that those, those changes so far have been able to stick. Like his footwork has gotten much better. Um, when I wrote about him before the year, there was a play against the Broncos last year where you could see him literally like almost battling his own feet. Like, you know, like, like, mm-hmm. like taking 15 or 20 steps in a row before making a throw. And that footwork has gotten better. His mechanics have gotten better and they're more consistent. He's more confident with those mechanics. It doesn't feel like he's one bad stretch or one pressure or one game away from suddenly, you know, losing his footwork or losing his ability to um, make those. And I think in the Steelers game, was kind of the best example of that because he was under a ton of pressure in the first half of that game. And if he was going to revert back to the old Josh Allen, who did struggle with his footwork, who did struggle with accuracy, that would have been it. And it didn't happen. Of course, he had Stefan Diggs to help him work his way through that. But, you know, by the end of that game, he was the same Josh Allen we've seen for most of 2020, and he was ripping apart one of the league's best defenses. So I think that you know, um, you can do the work. And I think other quarterbacks have done the work the same way Josh Allen does, but we're not going to know whether you can actually sustain that under pressure until you actually see them play, you know, hundreds and hundreds of snaps at the NFL level. I agree with that. And I think that the mechanics part is important to understand because you can change the mechanics all you want in laboratory conditions. When the games actually start, you're under duress, things change, and you get anxious, you get panicky, that's when your mechanics start to fall apart. But I also think that it's important to link the mental side and the physical side. And when you watch Josh Allen this year, the game is clearly much slower for him. He's much more confident in what he's seeing. And I think that helps you maintain changes in your mechanics. He's just in control, whether it's the way that they're using tempo, the way that they're using the cadence at the snap count, the way that he's seeing things on RPOs and stuff like that. I think that Mm -hmm. his grasp of the game has contributed to his mechanics being sounder. I also think that it's important to look at changes not only in circumstances for these guys and their individual teams, but circumstances in the sport in general. So if you look at the league in 2000, Chase Stewart tweeted this out today. I thought it was really interesting. This is the most efficient passing season in the history of the NFL. Sure. It, it, it breaks the record as last year was. So NFL quarterbacks this year averaged about 6.4 adjusted net yards per attempt. Averaged. In 2000, seven quarterbacks in the entire league averaged that over the course of the season. In 2000, there were 11 quarterbacks who averaged at least 0.1 EPA per dropback. This year, there were 23 of those guys. So if quarterbacking and offense in general are easier, if it's easier to find a guy who can give you competency at that position, isn't the best way to find a special player finding one with special ability and putting him into a scenario where playing quarterback is easier than it's ever been? Mm-hmm. I think that's a fair argument. Sure. When you said laboratory, though, I was imagining Josh Allen and Jordan Palmer with, like, you know, Bunsen burners and beakers uh, <laughs> trying to work through something. It feels mechanic. like a Sunday night football graphic just to come to life. It does feel that way. And I think that's true. And I think that we've um, we've talked about that before. When it Actually, Lamar Jackson is actually a really good example where we talked about, okay, it wasn't just drafting Lamar Jackson, but it was having Greg Roman as a coach. It was drafting Marquise Brown. It was building the tight ends. It was signing Nick Boyle to maybe a bigger deal than you would have expected for a blocking tight end. It was bringing in Mark Andrews. It was committing your scheme and your concept 
um, your concepts offensively to Lamar Jackson's skill set, even to a greater extent, I think, than Louisville did when they had Lamar Jackson. And of course, we saw the benefits last year. He won MVP. And I think, you know, across the league, no matter who your quarterback is, I, I think that the best teams in the league are taking their offenses and structuring their offenses and structuring their personnel and structuring their scheme to their quarterback skill set. And because, like you said, it's easier to pass than ever before and easier to move the ball and score than ever before, it you know, the benefits are more obvious and, and easier to see. So I think absolutely, um, you know, that's a philosophy we're going to have to think about moving forward when it comes to evaluating quarterbacks because – you know, maybe you have the Trevor Lawrences of the world and they're just going to work anywhere or your Andrew Luck, you know, top tier, utterly perfect or close to perfect quarterback prospects. But for everyone else, that's not going to be the case. And, you know, I, I think that we put so much effort and so much work into evaluating quarterbacks. But I wrote about this before the 2018 draft. We just don't know. We're just not yeah. very good at evaluating quarterbacks before they enter the NFL. And think about the quarterbacks from that draft class. I mean, every year. If you sat there after the season in 2018, 2019, and 2020 and rated those five quarterbacks, you would have had three different rankings each year, a different set of rankings each year. I mean, year one, you would have said Baker Mayfield was the best prospect from that class. He has not been the best prospect from that class since. Last year, you would have said Lamar Jackson. I think this year, you'd probably say Josh Allen, given how he's played this year. So, you know, it, it's been totally different. And that was a class, by the way, where it went Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, Josh Rosen. Oh, Josh Allen, excuse me. Josh Rosen, Lamar Jackson, correct? 22 picks, then Lamar Jackson. Right. So, I mean, but that's like, you know, it's it's pretty uh, maybe league average quarterback, um, below league average quarterback, uh, franchise quarterback, guy who barely belongs in football and league MVP. Like, what does that tell you about, you know, you could take a child and just throw, you know, throw crap at the wall and you would get a better order than the NFL actually drafted those guys in. That's and I think that's dead. really telling. And I think that if we're going to say that, if we're going to admit we don't know anything, and in doing that, essentially admit that the floor on these guys, there isn't one. It's not like this guy has a higher floor than the other. They're probably the same floor. So if that's the case, if we admit we don't know anything, I think it makes sense to take chances on the guys who you know have the highest ceiling. Mm-hmm. And that probably is going to lead to some mistakes, but I do think that it's worked out extremely well here over the last five years. It has. And now let me get this back to the the lesson I was going to take, because you brought up the idea of developing quarterbacks and the raw quarterbacks we don't know. And that's true. I absolutely agree with that. I think in 2020, we saw a clear example that we don't know anything about quarterbacks who aren't raw, guys who are already (laughs) in the NFL. We don't know anything about them. I mean, last year, if I had told you in August, let alone last, let alone 2019, if I had told you literally in August that the following things were going to happen. Carson Wentz was going to look at a replacement-level quarterback and get benched. Aaron Rodgers. Worse than replacement-level quarterback. Carson Wentz would be be a a Sam Darnold-level quarterback in Philadelphia and would be asking for a trade. He was as bad as Nick Foles was this year. I think Nick Foles was better than Carson Wentz this year. Let's be fair. I think it was pretty close. Anyway, Um, go ahead. Aaron Rodgers, a guy who had been declining for five years, would be... League MVP. I don't know. I, I did you is he your MVP pick? I forget. He is my MVP pick, yes. Okay, he's also my MVP pick. So Aaron Rodgers, a guy who it looked like he was going to be replaced as early as the 2021 season by Jordan Love, is the league MVP. Russell Wilson, a guy who was an MVP candidate in the first half of the season, was not hitting any of his deep passes in the second half of the year. 
Ryan Tannehill, a guy who had been at this level for a half season with Tennessee, a little over a half season with Tennessee, not only stayed at that level this year, but actually was even a little better maybe in 2020 than he was in 2019. That is more surprising to me than Aaron Rodgers winning MVP. But not as surprising as Carson Wentz being, uh, you know, a a third-string quarterback. No, probably not. But these are guys who we had firm opinions on. I guess even for Tannehill, you could say in 2019, right? I mean, the entire league evaluated Tannehill and said, we're not willing to give up more than a fourth-round pick for him. Miami had to eat $5 million just to get a fourth-round pick from Tennessee via trade. So they paid $2 million and a fourth-round pick to get Tannehill. And he was a top-10 quarterback. It was a top-10 quarterback again this year. Um, You know, these are guys who we had firmly established opinions on based on more than a thousand pass attempts, even closer to 2000 for guys like Wentz and Tannehill in one situation, and then either seeing them in a different situation or in the case of Wentz and Rogers, seeing them basically in the same situation, their performance was not just a little different. It wasn't just an off year or a career. It was a drastically, drastically different performance from what our expectations were. And I think that, you know, maybe the context around quarterbacks is changing quicker than we you know, are used to. Maybe we're seeing smarter coaches who are more effective passing the ball, maybe because you're passing the ball more frequently. Um, you know, you that, that, that's sort of the impact of a quarterback being really good or really bad is more significant. But I don't know that we know anything about quarterbacks anymore and, and how they're going to perform. And I think that our, our confidence in what we know about these guys just is not warranted given the broader evidence we have. I totally agree. And I, I wrote about this midway through the year or so about Tannehill. And I think the best lesson we can learn from what's happened with Ryan Tannehill is there are other Ryan Tannehills. There are other guys out there that can be gotten as tarnished assets and resurrected in the right circumstances. And that is the exact conversation that is going to be had around Sam Darnold in the coming months. Because when you look at what changes in a quarterback when his surroundings change and what can potentially change, there is a team that is going to talk itself into Sam Darnold doing the same thing. And I think that's reasonable because of how little we know about quarterbacks, even when they have a significant track record that they've shown to us. Absolutely. And I think that's going to color the way that some of the smarter teams in the league view these quarterbacks. You know, like with the Eagles, for example, I mean, I don't know what they're going to do. I've written about it. Certainly, everything is on the table. They could trade Carson Wentz. They could go with uh, Carson Wentz as their starter in 2021. They could draft a quarterback with the sixth overall pick. That's not out of the question. And I wonder if there are going to be teams who, and I've written about this before as well, might sit there and say, hey, we can't be confident about Carson Wentz or about Jared Goff being a $30 million a year player. And we're just going to build the best possible infrastructure around those quarterbacks and just shop in the bargain bin the same way we do with running backs. We're going to get a guy who is athletic, a guy who can make throws, and just assume that because we have the right coaching and the right talent that we're going to be okay. I think that's a really interesting thought. And you and I have talked about this and written about this over the last couple of years a lot. And the reasons that doesn't happen, the reasons why it might be smart. It's scary. And I think there are co- it's, it's really scary. It is, it is the, the fear of the unknown is part of it. And I also think you risk pissing off your locker room. Because look at the way that some of the Eagles guys like Miles Sanders today responded to the notion that their coach wasn't doing everything they could possibly do for them to win. Or even what J.J. Watt said to 
Deshaun Watson when they were walking off the field in week 17. The notion that you we wasted one of your years. I'm sorry about this. That is a hard thing for players to swallow. And if you know you can win with a guy like Jared Goff, like the Rams could, moving on and potentially finding a guy who's not as good as Jared Goff has a lot of emotional risks within your building. And I think that's part of the reason teams don't do it. I also feel like there are a couple different things to kind of consider with this. One, the idea that if playing quarterback is easier than it's ever been, and if infrastructure matters this much, you can just swap guys out. That's probably fair. And I think a lot of that infrastructure is based in play action and this Kubiak-Shanahan type of offense that we've seen guys succeed in, whether it's Aaron Rodgers, Ryan Tannehill, Baker Mayfield, at all levels of the spectrum. And I think it's important to acknowledge those levels because it is still really valuable, even if the baseline is higher, to have one of the really good guys. Because that type of infrastructure can make Baker Mayfield a good quarterback, Ryan Tannehill a great quarterback, and Aaron Rodgers a transcendent quarterback. So finding one of those guys is still really important, even if we acknowledge that the infrastructure can take lesser guys to a tolerable level. Mm -hmm. But like you said, you brought this up earlier, the floor for those average guys is a lot higher than it was 20 years ago. The floor for those guys 20 years ago was a passer rating of like 85. And you, you were ecstatic if they posted a quarterback rate or passer rating of 100. And now the floor for those guys is pretty much 100. So you're in a totally different situation where you can move the ball, even if you don't have those guys. And we're seeing with Jared Goff now, you know, I don't know that that locker room is more excited about John Wofford than Jared Goff, but there are holes in that team that would not be there if the Rams weren't spending as much as they are on Jared Goff. The Eagles are a team that, you know, is running out even before this week, replacement level players at linebacker and at safety and seems to be on purpose though. But this this week was on purpose, apparently, according to uh, No, I think Twitter. the linebacker thing is on purpose. I think they purposely devalue that position, but I understand your point, and I think that you're right. Right, but they, they can't even go out and get like a Nigel Bradham, is what I'm saying. They have literal guys making the minimum playing meaningful linebacker snaps for them. And that's not all Carson Wentz, but some of it is the fact that they're paying Carson Wentz a significant sum of money. So I I do feel like you know, there are teams who will be happy and say, okay, well, you know, you, you don't want to run the risk of upsetting your locker room, but I don't know that the Rams locker room is going to be thrilled if they, if they, you know, when they missed the playoffs last year, when they had Jared Goff as their quarterback and he wasn't playing very well, or, you know, those guys in the middle tier, if the Browns lose in the first round of the playoffs, they're not going to sit there and say, okay, well, at least we have Baker Mayfield. We're set for the next decade. They're going to sit there and say, okay, are we really getting the most out of our, you know, out of Nick Chubb's years, out of um, Joel Batonio's years, out of Wyatt Teller's years, when we have Baker Mayfield at quarterback. So, you know, I, I think we've 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 sort of put running backs on a pedestal for a long time, and that's changed. I wonder if we're going to put quarterbacks or take quarterbacks off of that same pedestal to some extent, unless you have one of those Mahomes or or Deshaun Watson types. I think it's more important not to take them off the pedestal necessarily. But understand where the tiers are and how those tiers are important. And if you fall below tier one, if you are in that large middle ground of quarterbacks, that those guys are mostly interchangeable. I think that is the most important realization. Not a great quarterback doesn't matter, but if you don't have a great quarterback, all quarterbacks are the same. I think okay. that is the most important realization. So so get get Aaron Rodgers or Patrick Mahomes or Deshaun Watson. Check. <laughs> Football is, as much as football changes, it's always going to stay the same, essentially, is the lesson there. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right. What is your next one here? Okay. This one is to anger every coach. Assuming many of them <laughs> listening to this podcast right now. Mays, OTAs, and the preseason do not need to exist. JC Treader, the uh, president of the NFLPA, said this recently. He is 100% correct. This was like the, the argument coaches had for decades uh, against players having less practice time, against less preseason games. The play was going to be sloppy. Fans were going to be upset. And the players were not going to develop at the at the rate that coaches wanted them to. And we've seen in the most recent CBA negotiation before this one a a, a dramatic decline in the tar- in the number of I believe padded practices during the preseason, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but a decline in practices for sure. And then this year, you know, the they ripped off the bandaid because of the pandemic. There were no no mini camp, um, no preseason. Obviously, training camp still existed, but dramatically reduced practice time. And Mays, I know that you are paying close attention. I know that like Troy Aikman will complain about the qual- the standard of tackling in the NFL or whatever. Is football appreciably different this year in terms of the on-field product than it's been in years past to you? No, but I also think it's important to acknowledge some of the reasons why that might be the case. Why is that the case? Oh, I think the league made a conscious effort to tweak the rules to make sure that this season was visually palatable. Oh, you think that they decided to, as, as Kevin Seifert has noted for us at ESPN, just stop calling offensive holding altogether? Stop calling offensive holding and call a lot of defensive, either whether it's illegal contact or pass interference. If that's going to be the going version of these rules in the future, let's do it. And honestly, I'm fine with that because the only people that are going to be pissed off about that are defensive linemen and defensive players. If that is the only group that we're upsetting by keeping this version of the rules intact, then I think do away with OTAs, keep everything with this calibration. Let's roll. I totally agree with you. Does that change the way you approach building a football team then? I've thought about this a lot and I've talked to some offensive uh, play callers about it and whether they had considered if holding and a lack of holding penalties was changing the way they were calling plays or changing the way they structure plays. The answer I'd gotten from a few different people was no, but I think the more accurate answer might be not yet, because if that sustains and it really is going to be a part of football moving forward, I think it has to be a consideration. The one area that I think I've thought about it the most is what types of rushers are going to be effective and valuable in the league are more speed to power guys that are moving through offensive linemen going to be as dangerous if they can get held consistently? Mm -hmm. And I don't know the answer to that. So I think that's the one area I'm watching it. But 
for right now, it, I think it can affect the game, but I think it's not going to be in a negative way. I'm totally fine with this like umbrella of rules continuing to exist. Are we worried about upsetting Aaron Donald and the impact of what that might do to... Um, it doesn't matter if Aaron Donald gets held, so it, that, that's fine. That's a moot point. I didn't realize. Yeah, it doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want to him. Holding has no impact on Aaron Donald, so... <laughs> Him and Miles Garrett are going to be just fine either way. TJ Watt does get held like every other play, though, but he's still mm-hmm. going to be maybe defensive player of the year. So again, I I think it's only going to have such a big impact. All right. I totally agree with you. I, I, have, I have a question for you then. Okay. So if you were JC Treader and you were negotiating for your players, would you say, hey, we don't want any more preseason, any more OTAs? Or what's the balance there for you that you think makes the most sense? No OTAs, absolutely, or only virtual, at least. Uh, We don't have to come back to wherever we are in the spring. I think that's silly and no longer should have to happen. Preseason games, I would want to talk to people at the PA, Mm -hmm. him or whoever, about the way they think it affects people down the pecking order. Right, that's what I was going to say. And I don't know the answer to that. That's a conversation I'd have to have with somebody. That would be the only argument in favor of it to me, is if it give because the PA is really conscious of this stuff, I think. You know, I remember talking to somebody there before the CBA negotiations happened, just about stuff like the franchise tag and everything else. And not or taking away the franchise tag was a non-starter to them Mm -hmm. because it doesn't affect enough players. Right. So when with stuff like this, of course, the veterans are fine without the preseason. But I think they're going to do a good job, or at least a thorough job, evaluating what no preseason would mean for a special teams gunner that needs those snaps in public in order to get signed somewhere off a practice squad. Uh, that's the only consideration that really matters to me. And and we've seen over the course of the last decade that players on rookie contracts are making up a larger portion of the yep. uh, the rosters right now. And so, you know, I think number one, that's not that, that's going to be more significant if we get rid of the preseason because there won't be an opportunity for some of the veterans, some of the, some of the lower level veterans who are holding on to jobs to prove that they're worth more than you know a a guy on a rookie contract because. You know, I, I feel like teams will just resort more to the money element of things than anything else. All right. Speaking of the money element of things, yes. my second lesson here is that there is significant value in biting the bullet for at least one year with your salary cap in order to hit the reset button hard. Ooh, okay. And, and I think that the there are a lot of examples of that this year. I think two really good ones, invisible ones, are obviously the Dolphins after what they did last season, but also... This is still a stage of that Browns rebuild that we watched a couple of years ago. And another team in that conversation is the Bills. If you look at one-year dips or one-year jumps for those teams in dead money and purging their rosters, the Browns had $80 million combined in 2016 and 2017. They did it over multiple years, and I think we could have a real conversation about how prudent that is. Mm-hmm. But the Bills had $70 million in dead money in 2018. The Dolphins had... $68 million in dead money in 2019. And I think willing to being willing to endure that sort of season and to say we are starting over has really benefited those franchises. And I think that if you have the right shepherd of this sort of rebuilding plan, I don't know how much tanking on purpose and losing a bunch of games and being at the top of the draft is the most important thing. I think that we could argue about that. But I do think that committing to a clean slate is really important for setting yourself up well for the future. And I think the Bills, honestly, are the perfect example of that. In 2017, when they made the playoffs, Mm -hmm. 
it would have been easy to say, look, we made the playoffs. We can build on this. And instead, they were just like, absolutely not. We are tearing this thing down and we are starting over when Brandon Bean comes in. And what they have done with that blank slate mm-hmm. is, to me, a really good roadmap for other franchises. I think the Dolphins have done a good job as well. But I do think that if you're the Jets or the Jags and you just went through that season of purging your entire roster and you now have that blank slate, you now have examples of how to do it well. And I think that that overall plan for a team like the Lions, Mm -hmm. who is now kind of going to face a similar sort of decision, I think going that direction would serve them well the same way it serves some of these other teams. I don't agree with this at all. Okay, interesting. Go ahead. Okay, here's why. Number one, 2017 Bills. They got to the playoffs by accident. They were not expecting to make it to the postseason. They benched Tyrod Taylor for Nathan Peterman in November because they wanted to evaluate... Uh, the Peterman, and they managed to back into the playoffs, but that was not the plan that year. They were rebuilding that year, and that's great. It gave them more headway to make the moves they wanted to make in 2018 and sort of have more time to do what they wanted to do. But the thing that concerns me about following the Bills model is that the Bills are built so much through free agency. There are so many signings they made in free agency, and Because the Bills have a great coaching staff, because they've drafted extremely well, those signings have worked. They've spent a lot on mid-tier signings. It reminds me a lot of a team we used to talk about quite a bit um, when we would podcast together at Grantland, the Jacksonville Jaguars, who would make a lot of these mid-tier signings. For the Bills, almost every one of those signings have worked out. For the Jaguars, almost every one of those signings did not work out. Obviously, eventually, they drafted well enough and and signed guys like Calais Campbell and sort of bigger ticket guys and did find a very successful season. For the Bills, I mean, so many of their mid-tier signings are guys who were okay somewhere else and have looked better in Buffalo. Your Colt Beasley's, your Jordan Poirier's, um, even someone like a... uh, John Brown is is John, another example of one of those John. mid-tier guys. You know, they've done a lot of that in the in the defense or excuse me, up in the front seven especially this year. Yeah, Jordan Phillips was the guy I was thinking of. But I th- here's my thing though. I think that the Jags signed a lot of big ticket guys. And they, I don't I feel like if you spread out that free agent money that you have. I think the Dolphins are a good example of this. I the Kyle Van Noy contract to me is a little egregious. But I think the smartest ways they handed out money this offseason were to guys like Emmanuel Ogba and Shaq Lawson, those mid-tier free agents. I, I talked to Brandon Bean about this in the past, about how with that free agent money, they were patient, and they really used it to plug holes in order to make sure that their draft strategy wasn't one born of desperation, where I don't have to draft this guy because we need somebody in that spot. And I think that's a smart way to think about free agency. So I'm actually okay with building in free agency if it's the middle part of your roster in the way that it has been for the Bills and in some ways is for the Dolphins right now. Can I read you some of the Jaguars you're forgetting about here? I'm not talking about like the Calais Campbells of the world. That That's a great move. I love Calais Campbell. I have no issue with anyone signing Calais Campbell, especially a few years ago, for any amount of money. Well, I, I we need to talk about like uh, Jared Odrick and Dan, like all like that entire group of guys. Dan, Dan Scuda, Toby Gerhardt, like... Like, I, I think there is logic to what you're saying, but at some point, you have to rely on your drafting. Whether it's going to work out or not, you have to trust that you don't need to sign Chris Ivory and Toby Gerhardt to solve well, your Well, yeah, I'm not problem. signing any free agent running backs okay, in this no, plan. But, but That's them. what I mean them. when I said that the shepherd of this has to be the right kind of people. I right. think that you, as long as you have the right coach and the right people in place, this is an okay way to do it. 
spending money on free agent running backs is not the right shepherd for this leave, plan. Leave leave the running backs aside. There are still other. There's a dozen. Red Bryant. Uh, did I say Dan Scuda? Dan Scuda. You did, you did say uh, Dan Scuda. You know, um, Gino. Uh, Gino Hayes signing. Uh, you know, just guys like where Chris Clemens. Chris Clemens is a good player. Nothing wrong with Chris Clemens, but that's a 33, 32 year old pass rusher you're signing to be the lead pass rusher on your defense. That's just not a smart way to go about things. And I, I think it worked for the bills, but I would be hesitant to follow that strategy. If I'm really, I think the idea of let's work in the mid, in the middle class of free agency is smart. I think you can get that to work, but I think the bills are the exception as opposed to the rule. Maybe I'm wrong. We'll see in the years to come. I think other teams will try and follow the bill strategy, but I, I have seen other teams go down that path unsuccessfully in years past. The Giants, by the way, are another team who did this as well. I think as long as you're keeping those deals at a relative minimum and you're using it to build the middle part and the meat of your roster rather than the high end of your roster, I'm okay with it. And I think that you're right that the Bills have executed to perfection, but I still think it's a better path forward to some of these teams who have been toiling in the middle of the league like a Detroit. But like oh, sure. the, Lion, the Lions, for example, okay? If you're the Lions right now and you look at your roster and you say, well, if we kept Matthew Stafford, he's better than anybody we're going to have anyway. You know, some of these guys are better than the alternatives. I think that's how you talk yourself into this treadmill of irrelevance. And I think it's important to try to get yourself off of that and giving yourself a clean slate even if it doesn't mean getting to the top of the draft to draft someone, mm-hmm. I'm just talking about having room to work financially and just having some, like a canvas on which to paint your version of a franchise, I think has been valuable for teams over the last three okay, to four years. Maze, look at the Lions roster right now. The guys who are on there. Let's leave Trey Flowers aside because Trey Flowers is a big money deal. But Desmond Trufant, um, Hal Vitae, Marvin Jones, Justin Coleman, Jamie Collins. Um, Danny Amendola. But, but like, let's say those are the, I, okay, maybe this is simplifying it too much. It's just saying they picked the wrong guys, but they picked the wrong guys and they picked the wrong guy in large part because they picked the wrong guy at the top. But I that's, think that, that's my point though. My point is not that following the bill strategy is not going out and signing a bunch of free agents or signing the signing because you don't know who the right free agents are. The point is if you have the right guys at the top and the bills have that and Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean, you're going to get the other stuff right because the players you sign are going to be better once you bring them into your organization. Whereas with the Lions, because they had Matt Patricia as their head coach, all the guys they brought in, even if they had success elsewhere, including in New England, got worse the moment they arrived in Detroit because their coach sucked. I know, but I think it's I, for. I really do think it is. There's more to it. Than also, you need the right coach. I agree I think that there is a way to say I, I want to start over with my vision for this rather than going halfway on someone else's and mine. Also, one more thing for you, and then let's move on to the next point. How differently do we think about the Bills if Antonio Brown agrees to, agrees to get traded to the Bills uh, that night last, or a couple of years ago? Oh, not that differently. I mean, I think it's a version of the Stefan Diggs trade. But do they make the Stefan Diggs trade then? Maybe not. But I think that it, that's it's the same idea where you're getting a number true number one receiver that's available for reasons that aren't in their control. I think it, I think they're very similar moves. I just think it's it's like like I think they've done an incredible job in Buffalo. I think they have been the best organization in football over the last four years in terms of how they built this roster. But it's always funny how little things might go slightly differently. And then suddenly um, our perception might be changed about how we view the moves that they make. But anyway, 
What's your next one? My next one is, I'm going to say the floor I have learned this year, Maze, for a great quarterback is not seven wins. And the reason why I say seven wins is I think about those Drew Brees teams when the Saints were in cap hell and they had like the worst defense in the history of football two out of three years. Um, those teams went seven and nine. So my, my idea was now in the past happy era when you have a true, absolute, no doubt, superstar franchise quarterback still playing at a, a star level, you cannot win fewer than seven games. It's just impossible. Your, your quarterback's going to back you into too many wins somehow. The Houston Texans proved that I was wrong. The Houston Texans, somehow, with Deshaun Watson playing out of his mind for the vast majority of this season, in one of the most pass-happy offenses offenses in football after Bill O'Brien got fired, they won four games. That Do you it, think it this is a corollary of what we were talking about before? Where because everyone has a competent quarterback, having a really good quarterback, the floor is only so high? Do you think those are connected in any way? I think it's a little connected maze, but they also lost to Mitch Trubisky and Brandon Allen in the last. Well, Mitch Trubisky is playing like a superstar in the second half of the season, so that doesn't really apply. Okay, so Brandon, I'll I'll leave Mitchell Trubisky aside then. Brandon Allen, they <laughs> lost to in a game where it wasn't, other, it wasn't serious. The other team scored thirty-seven points. The Bengals. It's I I, I think it's a it really resets the idea that like you can never be safe. I mean, the teams I said this year before the year who were going to decline were the Texans, the Packers, the Seahawks, and the Saints. Because the numbers all said those teams were likely to decline. Now, the Saints declined by a game. I don't think they're that much different. They just happen to be a little less lucky this year than they were a year ago and lost Drew Brees for a little bit of time as well. But the Packers and Seahawks not declined. The Packers got an MVP performance, MVP performance from Aaron Rodgers. The Seahawks had a first-half MVP performance from Russell Wilson. And you could sit here and say, hey, well, you shouldn't say great teams are going to decline because they have a quarterback. And when you have that quarterback, you're going to be in every game. You're going to have a shot to win every game with the Texans. You know, like they are the proof that you can sell out. You can trade multiple first round picks. You can build a, a expensive offensive line around your quarterback. You can, you know, they don't have DeAndre Hopkins, but they have a pretty good receiving core when everyone's healthy and Will Fuller and Brandon Yeah, man, Cooks. Randall Cobb is a $10 million cap hit next year. They spent on that receiving core. I'm, I'm. I don't know if you know this. I was not a fan of the Randall Cobb signing phase. It's but, it's it is the it is the I'm, I'm not trying to attack Randall Cobb when I say this stuff because I want to make that clear. It is the most misguided decision that a team made in free agency this year, in my opinion, because they had Kiki QT on the roster as a slot receiver for nothing, for nothing. And they gave Randall Cobb a contract that is going to have an eleven million dollar cap at next year and ten million dollars in dead money. It was like a one year deal. They they paid him 10 times as much money as Kiki QT is set to make next year. And QT had as many yards and catches in eight games as Randall Cobb had in 10. That is the most, that is the perfect explanation for how to screw up in free agency and not understand what you should be going after. Can, can I say two things? Number one, I can't believe I'm about, about to defend Bill O'Brien here, but Kiki QT did fumble four times. Uh, as opposed to Randall Cobb's zero fumbles. So. That's fine. That's It's totally fine. I will take <laughs> you. For, for a tenth of the price, I'm cool with the fumbles. I, I appreciate that. You're willing to accept four fumbles a year for $10 million. That's it's, not, it's, it's, it's about $2 million a fumble. I'm good with that. <laughs> I would say the Eric Murray signing was worse. Um, yeah, that's fair. It's at, fair. 
After three weeks, Bill O'Brien wanted to sign Earl Thomas to replace Eric Murray. And his own players had to say, no, don't sign Earl Thomas. Um, <laughs> that feels like so long ago. And yet it was it was only a few months ago. But I know. To get back to the text. 2020 in a nutshell. I mean, I, I think it's sort of, you know, it, it gets back to the first point about the idea of, you know, once you have that quarterback, you can feel secure. Deshaun Watson, I think, is a tier one quarterback, to use Mike Sandoz tiers. He's not even, not even in the the Carson Wentz, Dak Prescott second tier, um, you know, at least before the year Carson Wentz was in, in tier two. But Deshaun Watson is a, a tier one transcendent, you know, you you give up everything you have to get that guy kind of quarterback. And that still wasn't enough to win more than four games. So I, I think it's sort of, again, thinks about how you're building a team, how you're building a roster, and and how the quarterback just does not guarantee you anything. Even, you know, maybe Patrick Mahomes does. Maybe he's just on a different tier from everyone else. But I do think that we're getting at the point now where we have to think more holistically about how we're building a roster and not just saying, okay, let's start to get a quarterback and he'll figure everything else out because we've seen now, not only can you be a mediocre team with that kind of quarterback, you can be one of the worst teams in football. Even- you can give away the third overall pick because you traded it away. When they did it the first time, when they traded the two first rounders to the Browns and ended up giving the fourth overall pick to the Browns the following year, which was Denzel Ward, who's a, a fantastic cornerback, they at least got to Sean Watson. At least that was okay. They got, at least he got hurt that year. At least yes. there was an explanation for why it happened. Yes. They got Larry Tunsil, who is a good left tackle, maybe even a very good left tackle, who's getting paid millions of dollars. Actually, no. Before the Ronnie Stanley deal, was getting paid millions of dollars more than anybody else in football, who has been good. I mean, he led the league in penalties last year. He's what second team all pro for you, I thought. Larry Tunsil? Yeah. Oh, I think he's fantastic. I think he's a really, really good player. He okay, was first team all pro for me. Let, let's say he's a, a top five left tackle. Is that fair to say? I think top four. Yes. I think it's a, a four, four man race. Yes. Okay. You say top four left tackle. And that did nothing. The show Watson still getting hit a ton, still getting pressured a ton. As good as Larry Tunsil is, it has not changed that roster in the slightest. And now because they were so aggressive to make that trade, because they weren't willing to make any other choices left tackle, because they were insisting until a week beforehand that Matt Khalil was going to be their starting left tackle, and they had to trade over the odds to make that deal with the Dolphins, they're giving up the third overall pick in this year's draft, which is incredible. For Deshaun Watson, you'd make that trade. For Laramie Tunsil, as good as he is, you would never make that trade. It's brutal. I was thinking about it today, and I think it makes you not reconsider the Seahawks trade for Jamal Adams, but makes you reconsider what it could look like next year if some things go wrong and they're happening to give away a top 10 pick. I don't think they will. I think the Seahawks are a good organization and all that, but I, I totally agree with you. It makes you reconsider what the floor is and what that means for going all in, for better, lack of a better term. All right, my last one here. I think that what Brandon Staley has done with the Rams Come on. and piggybacking off other things that have happened is an indication that that structure of defense and going with that too high system has a lot of merit and should influence defensive innovation going into the future. I don't agree and, with this one either, but please continue. Uh, I, uh, that's fine. And it's the reason for it is that I think when one thing happens and you see one thing go well and teams chase it, there are a lot of mistakes made because it can be a fluke. I think what Brandon Staley has done in LA is not just proof that what Brandon Staley is doing is working, but proof that what Vic Fangio has done for the last five years Mm -hmm. is smart and replicable. 
I remember reading last year, John Kime wrote something on ESPN about Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay, and Matt LaFleur. And he asked all of them a bunch of questions. And one of them was, who is the hardest defensive coordinator in the league to go against? Mm -hmm. And every single one of them said Vic Fangio. Mm -hmm. And it was so interesting to me when I kind of looked at the whole thing that there was no one in the NFL doing the things Vic Fangio was doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a comment about the state of defensive innovation in the league, which we can get to in a second. But watching Brandon Staley not, you know, sort of copy a lot of the things McFangio is doing, just starting in two high safeties. If you look at the numbers, it's really drastic. I mean, they're mm -hmm. both using middle of the field open two high safety looks on more than 80% of plays. No one else in the league is above 60. Mm -hmm. And the Rams are using a light box on 83% of plays, and the Broncos are at 78. No one else is above 72. Mm -hmm. So if it's really, they're an outlier. It, that is what being different looks like if you see it visually. And I think that the ways that Vic Fangio made it hard for teams and the reasons that that system makes it hard, whether that's being less predictable in your coverages, whether it's being more effective against crossing routes because your safeties are playing from depth, all of that stuff, I think that has merit. And I think that looking to that system and trying to use it in different ways could be a way for teams to find better defense than they are right now. I really do think that there is something to the values and the benefits of running that type of defense. I didn't realize I was here to plug people's written content, but apparently if you want to read more about Brandon Staley's defensive philosophy and some of the reasons he does the things he does, I don't remember who, but someone at the athletic wrote an article about it last week. Um, it was pretty good. I mean, I, I'm a fan of many athletic articles. This was one of the better ones, but I don't remember who wrote it. Um, Me neither. It's it, nobody good. I can tell you that. I would check that out. A lot of typos in that article. No, um, <laughs> it was a great article, and I think it's 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 really true that the league is on defense is sort of lagging behind offenses. I mean, I, if I asked you to before the year, not you because you know too much about football, but if I asked a random person, hey, name the top five offensive minds in the NFL, they'd have five or ten names right out. It would be Shanahan, McVay, Joe Brady. Like you'd have names ready. If I'd asked the same person to name the top five defensive minds, the top five most defensive innovators in football, they'd have to think for a while. I don't know if they'd have the names. And it's not to say that they're not smart, this, this hypothetical person I just invented, but you know, we just don't think about defensive being innovative in the same way we think about offenses. We don't think about them being creative in the same way we think about offenses. And I think there are people being creative on defense, but we're not inclined to think about it that way. And I agree with you from that perspective. And I think that it's true that I think playing with with two split safeties, playing two high looks is generally going to be smarter because of where the game is going. We're throwing the ball more. So you don't need that eighth guy in the box as frequently. One of the teams that is going in a different direction right now is one of the hotter coaching candidates out there, which is Matt Eberflus in Indianapolis, where they played a lot of Tampa 2 and a lot of two high safety looks over the past two years. And this year, after Malik Hooker got hurt, they brought in Julian Blackman, who's been awesome for them as a rookie safety, they're playing a ton of single high looks right now. And part of that is because they're winning games and because they're not, they're not in a situation. I guess not, it's not. I mean, I think they just philosophically, it looks like they, because they have the personnel to do it with Blackman, are playing more single high looks. And I think the reason why I disagree here is not that I think it's not true right now. I think it is. But I think that the league is going to naturally evolve. And of course. I think what we're seeing coming out of out of college now to get back to Josh Allen to get back to Lamar Jackson are more quarterbacks who are mobile more quarterbacks who are going to threaten teams 
as a runner in the box. We're going to see teams who are more comfortable letting those quarterbacks run the ball. And so I think that as teams play more split safety coverages and they get that guy out of the box, that safety out of the box, I think we're going to see quarterbacks who run the ball. And when quarterbacks run the ball, it's more efficient than when running backs run the ball. They pick up bigger chunks of yardage. They are more threatening. It's closer to your typical pass play than it is your typical run play. And so I think because we're going to see so many mobile quarterbacks continue to come out of college football, I think we're going to see um, defenses have to respond to that by getting that eighth man back in the box and not playing split safety I totally coverages. disagree. Colleges play to split safety looks in large part because of the way that they have to defend RPOs. You can absolutely defend the run. I'm not saying RPOs. I'm saying I'm you, saying but and quarterback run. You can absolutely defend quarterback of runs course you with can. the split with two. The Rams had the most effective run defense in the NFL this season by playing out of light boxes. Okay, can I tell you what the difference is between the Rams and light boxes and other teams in light boxes? They have Aaron Donald. It doesn't, but that's... Oh, it I, does it, matter. I know. It, I that, it matters, but it's it goes beyond that. I think you can steal back enough numbers to play this way. I would much rather lose with the quarterback beating me on the quarterback power runs than 20-yard pass plays. I agree. And that's why I think that this is the way to structure it. And beyond... Just the schematic parts of this. I think the innovative part of this is another thing to talk about because defense has not been the incubator for innovation that offense has been. Not at if all. You, and, I, and I think that we look for the next defensive coach or we look for solutions on the defensive side of the ball in the wrong places. If you look at the defensive coordinators in the league right now, there are 30 of them because there are two teams that their head coaches, their defensive play call with Belichick and Vrabel. Okay. Mm-hmm. 13 of the 30 are former head coaches that have been fired. Almost half. Sometimes that works. Steve Spagnuolo has been great. Jack Del Rio has been really good for Washington. Other times, it does not work out very well. The average age right now of the 30 defensive coordinators in the league is 54 years old. 19 of them will be 55 or older by the end of 2021. Mm -hmm. I just think we're looking in the wrong places for answers on defense. I think the Raiders after the season that they had, saying Gus Bradley is the answer to our problems is the exact wrong way to think about finding the next defensive coach that can make your defense great. I think that teams look at their next defensive coordinator as a way to be serviceable and a way to be fine rather than a way to try to push things in the way that the Rams did with Brandon Staley. And I think that's wrong. That I agree with you on. I will say that I think that it was questionable. I mean, there are a lot of people skeptical of Sean McVay for saying, hey, we're going to let Wade Phillips leave and we're going to replace him with a guy who most people haven't heard of. And I mean, I I am not the person to disrespect Wade Phillips. Wade Phillips is a great defensive coach. I think he is the exception to many rules when it comes to older coaches. But Brandon Staley has improved the Rams defense. Now, Jalen Ramsey being there for a full season helps and there's other things that come into play. But that is a Rams defense that was in transition. They lost a bunch of players from last year, and they're getting the most out of the players they have. And so they have the best defense in the NFL. Right, right. And so I think it is smart to be more aggressive when it comes to hiring coaches on defense who you're not expecting. And I think the classic one that nobody ever looks for when it comes to a dream head coaching candidate is Mike Tomlin. Mike Tomlin was a secondary coach for the vast majority of his career. I think he had one year as a DC before he got hired as a head coach. And yet, how many teams are really going out and hiring young, you know, defensive uh, positional coaches to be in more meaningful roles? Very few. And so I think that is probably an untapped and, and valuable place to go when it comes to hiring some of these coordinators and even some of these head coaches. The idea that we're going to have 
trying to think of the right example. Is there a defensive head coach that's gotten fired in this cycle? Or is it all offensive head coaches? I believe it's all offensive coaches. Uh, Matt Patricia. Matt Patricia. That was so long ago. It is a crime that Matt Patricia is likely going to get a defensive coordinator job before a guy like Chris Hewitt, who is the secondary coach and pass game coordinator in Baltimore, is going to get one. That, to me, is, is the most backwards way to think about this possible. And I think that's one of the reasons that defense is lagging behind offense league-wide. This is unfair, because I brought up Chris Hewitt as a head coach in Canada stay on Twitter, and you... Just brought him up as, oh, well, someone should hire him as a coordinator. Not fair. I brought him up first. It's my idea. I'm so sorry. I, he was one of those guys. I remember last year so vividly. I was in their facility, and I was doing a story on their defensive structure and how much they blitz. Mm-hmm. And I asked him three or four questions about it. And I remember afterward, I was talking to one of their staffers and just being like, that's an impressive guy. And they're just like, yeah, <laughs> man, we, we know. And it's just, it's amazing to me that guys like that aren't getting better opportunities. It just yeah. makes so much sense to seek out somebody like that. And instead, we're trotting out the same old guys. So I do think the too high structure thing is part of it because I do think that teams would be well served to try to build their defense that way. Mm-hmm. But I also think the Staley thing is as much a lesson about the places we look for coaches. I All right, buddy. We got to get out of here. Jeff is going to come on here in a second. I really appreciate it. I always do. I thank you for pushing back on some of my ideas, which I should have anticipated that you'd do. So <laughs> thank you very much. It's always good to talk to you. I'm sure we'll talk to you again. Sounds great. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, it's time for this week's team visit. I am thrilled to welcome our Ravens writer, Jeff Zarebeck, to the show. Jeff, how are you doing? Good. How are you, Robert? I'm doing really well. I I wanted to talk about the Ravens. I feel like they were the perfect team to do this week because when the playoffs get here, I always like to kind of step back and do a little bit of a reset, not only about my expectations for teams, but where they sit. Are they trending upward? Who's hurt? Who's not? And this is the team I feel like that's more valuable with than anyone else because in the middle part of the season, I think it was easy to write the Ravens off. Their offense was struggling. Lamar Jackson didn't look like the guy he was last year. They felt like they had lagged behind some of the other contenders in the league. Well, that has changed a little bit. Over the last six weeks or so, they are on a just rocket ride to the top of the league. They lead the NFL in point differential. They're seventh in DVOA right now, and their offense has been so much better in the second half of the year. I know they played bad teams, but I still think it's important to kind of recalibrate our expectations for what this Ravens team is in this moment. So if you're looking at that stretch, essentially the second half of the season and after Lamar Jackson got back, what would you say is the biggest difference between this version of this Ravens team and one we might've seen in like week eight? 
Uh, well, I think it all starts with uh, Lamar Jackson, first of all. Uh, you know, he he's never admitted it. Um, he claims that, it, you know, none of that outside stuff, expectations, attention, none of that stuff bothers him. Um, but early in the year, honestly, Robert, it looked like he was playing with the weight of the world on his shoulders. It looked like mm-hmm. he was trying to win the MVP award every time he dropped back for a throw. And I, I just think that they were trying to be something that they really weren't, you know, they were trying to evolve as an offense and show, uh, that they could beat teams through the air, uh, when there were some, uh, you know, key elements missing from last year's team, uh, mainly, you know, Marshall Yonda. I mean, they really missed Yonda. Their offensive line was kind of, you know, in flux earlier in the season. And then they lost, you know, all pro Ronnie Stanley at left tackle. And then tight end Nick Boyle went down and he's so key. So I think it's taken them a while to kind of get back to this identity and to find a way to play in that manner uh, while making up for kind of some of the personnel losses. You know, the offensive line has settled. Uh, Jackson has been much more aggressive with his legs. He's not running any more than he was in the first half, really. It's just kind of how he's running. You know, he's not forcing the ball when he drops back. If he doesn't see something he likes, he's taking off um, and making something out of nothing. Or he's, you know, taking off and then throwing. I mean, they've made a lot of big plays with him on the run with his with his arm uh, in recent weeks, like the big one in Cleveland to Marquise Brown. So, uh, you know, there's a bunch of factors. I think Greg Roman has changed some of their run schemes a little bit to mask the fact that they're without, you know, their best blocking tight end, Nick Boyle. Uh, you know, but, you know, it's it looks a lot like the team last year in terms of how they're going about things and, and the run heavy approach and how much Jackson's using his legs. Um, but obviously, then in some areas, the personnel is a little bit different. I think that makes total sense. And I think back to the week one win over the Browns and the passing game was incredible. You know, Lamar yeah. finished with 20 to 25 for 275 and three touchdowns. And it honestly felt I remember talking about it this way that this was going to be a different version of this offense, that he had settled in so much as a passer. And even the following week, he went 18 to 24 for 200 yards against the Texans. And it really did feel like he was so in control. And I almost think that two-game stretch at the beginning is like when a decent but not great three-point shooter hits a couple early Mm -hmm. in the game and then just keeps shooting them. And they really wanted to be that version of their offense, and it didn't suit them. And it really does feel like He's just moving quicker and not trying to force things when it's not there. If nobody's open, I'm going. And I really have noticed that a lot. So I think that part of it is huge. I also think you've seen some of the ways they've settled into this version of their personnel, like you alluded to. Switching out your right guard and your center midway through the season (laughs) when you're this sort of run-heavy team, that could doom teams. But for them, I actually think... This five with McCarty in at center now and Ben Powers in at right guard and the switching they had to do by moving Orlando Brown left tackle, all of that, it really feels like they have a sense of how to use that group right now. Do you think that's fair? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely, Robert. I, I think it is. And, you know, they're getting by at right tackle with Fluker, uh, but they're also subbing, you know, third round pick Tyree Phillips in for him for like one drive each half because, Earlier in the season, when Fluker was having to play a lot, he kind of wore down late in the game and, you know, his his technique would drop a little. I don't know if it was a stamina thing or what, but he had some issues late in the game. So uh, they're trying to keep uh, keep him a little fresher through the course of the game by adding Tyree Phillips. I I think Ben Powers has been huge. You know, we all kind of wondered, like, 
you know, he's a fourth round pick at Oklahoma. They originally originally was, you know, viewed as the heir apparent to Yonder when they drafted him. We were wondering, you know, why, you know, they're, they're, why are they trying? What's wrong with Ben Powers? But he really struggled in training camp. I, you know, he seems to be one of those guys you talk to people that's not a very good impre- uh, practice player. He doesn't really look all that impressive when you look at him. Uh, but he's added so, so, some nice physicality uh, to that group. Uh, you know, Matt Scora's set snapping really hurt them earlier this year. And, and Macari has cleaned that up. And I think Bradley Bozeman has really taken the next step this year. So uh, them settling on, on an offensive line and that group stabilizing and kind of playing more to their strengths in terms of, you know, they're doing a lot of outside runs, you know, Dobbins in motion and getting him on the outside. And even Gus Edwards is, is who was just the ultimate between the tackles guy last year. You even see him getting outside a lot more. So um, it was like Greg Roman realized, you know what, we're not going to be able to line up run it straight down the straight down the team's throats right now with our personnel, without Stanley, without Boyle, uh, you know, with some inexperience in the offensive line. So uh, we need to add some dimensions to this running game. And, and you know, they've gotten guys on the edge a lot, a lot more and, and getting different ways of, you know, running the football that we didn't really see last year. And I, I think that's been hugely important uh, to what they've done and how what I mean, they're averaging 267 rushing yards per game over the last five games. I mean, that's pretty close to unheard of. It's it's incredible. And if you look at the numbers, so they were fifth in the NFL in EPA per rush over the first half of the season. It was 0.022. That's pretty good, right? It's like, oh, that's solid. Like they're a top yeah, five yeah. rushing team over the second half of the season. 0.156, which is clearly the best in the league. So five times as good per rush. So I, the ranking isn't much different, but the efficiency is completely different. And I think the outside runs point is such a good one. And not only are they is has Dobbins given them a little bit of a more dynamic type of option to get on the edge, but because he's going in motion and those thr- runs are threatening the edge, they're able to come back with some of these quarterback counter runs up the middle. And I think that's been one of the biggest differences is that Lamar is attacking between the tackles now where last year, a lot of the damage he was doing is when he would pull and go around the edge. And not only is that allowing them to threaten teams both inside and outside, but it's creating angles for them in the run game. If you look at their quarterback counter runs where they have Brown and Bozeman pull from left to right, that allows their backup center and backup right guard to have angles on the front side of these plays. So it's a way to use your best linemen as weapons, a way to help your lesser linemen, and a way to throw a counter punch with your most dynamic player having the ball in his hands. It's a really, really smart evolution in season from Greg Roman that I think has given this team an entirely new level than they had at the beginning of the year. It's funny, you know, and, and around here, around these parts, they can't get rid of Greg Roman soon, soon enough. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I, I get it. I mean, they've struggled in the passing game. It's kind of his reputation uh, where he's kind of struggled to, you know, marry a, a running, you know, a powerful, versatile running attack with, with uh, you know, downfield passing game. But, you know, I, I don't think, you know, you know, and they have struggled in some areas and, and his play calling has been curious at times, but I don't think he's gotten really enough credit down the stretch here with what he's done to make, I mean, because you look at the names on that offensive line, you know, Eric Tomlinson's playing a ton, you know, uh, blocking, uh, you know, they're, they're doing a lot with their personnel and doing a lot with that scheme. And, you know, the Giants had a good rushing defense and, and 
you know, they gave up 250 yards to the Ravens on the ground. You know, the, you know, they haven't played the best defenses down the stretch. Uh, but with the way they're running the ball, I, I think most teams would be struggling to stop them right now. They've they've got they've shown a completely different look, um, you know. And and Dobbins has been at the key to that. And you made a great point about how they're using you know Lamar and, and running uh, this year. That uh, some of his biggest plays have been uh, where he's done that and gone up the middle rather than just constantly going around the edge. Um, you know, off, you know, different things. So uh, it's been different. It's been a very fun to watch. And, and I think, you know, they're creating more things downfield too in the passing game. It's not a totally. dynamic passing attack by any means, but, you know, we saw some big strikes to Boykin and Marquise Brown in recent weeks. And, uh, you know, it's kind of getting closer to the offense. I think people envisioned it being, uh, you know, at the start of the year. The play to Boykin, I think, is a great example of what the passing game can be. Because teams, for the most part, over the last couple of years, have done a really good job taking away the middle of the field against Lamar on purpose, because that's where he's best. And they ran, I think it was just, they called a Mills concept. It was a deep in with Andrews, and then Boykin came behind it on a post against the Bengals. And it was gorgeous. Andrews held the single deep safety. Boykin went right behind it, one-on-one with the corner, and Lamar delivered a great ball between the numbers where he's best. So I think leaning into some vertical concepts like that makes a ton of sense with what they have. I also think that in the beginning of the year, because he wasn't as decisive running, teams were able to play a little bit more man coverage against them and sit in it. Now he's making teams pay when they do that. He's taking off immediately. That's forcing teams into zone and he's really good against zone. So all of these things, like one hand washes the other. There's a domino effect when he's more confident and dynamic as a runner. It makes things easier for them in the passing game. Yeah, and, um, you know, that it was a great example of Boykin play because, you know, I guess it was Jesse Bates earlier the season, and he, what he said was true. He's like, look, we know if he's going to throw the ball, he's going to throw it to either Andrews or, or Marquise Brown. And uh, we saw on that play – uh, Von Bell, I think it was, you know, totally uh, kind of bit. And, and as you said, he, he, Von Bell expected Mark Andrews to get to the ball and that left Boykin one-on-one. You know, early in, in training camp, you know, there's so much attention this year on on Lamar Jackson throwing the deep ball and then making big bigger chunk plays in the passing game. And, you know, in training camp, you know, Marquise Brown and, and, and Boykin and those guys were, you know, in a lot of days having their way with, uh, Marlon Humphrey and, and Marcus Peters. And we, you know, we thought we were going to see that more, you know, it was impressive to watch at times. Then the season started and then the, you know, the deep ball or the downfield passing game, uh, you know, after those first two games, you know, you mentioned, you know, the Browns game in week one, you know, it kept going a little and then it just kind of, you know, uh, came to a halt and we just didn't see it. I think, you know, the, they play the Titans obviously Sunday and, and Marquise Brown, I think, had zero catches on three targets the last time they played the Titans. They just were not getting these guys involved at all. Now you're seeing and starting to get them in some nice matchups and, and those guys starting to make plays down the field. Um, it, it bodes well for them, definitely. I think the question will be heading this playoff. If they get behind, can they come back and win? You know, we saw mm-hmm. it in the Titans game last year. We've seen it against the Chiefs. That'll be the test. Uh, but their passing game certainly been much more efficient than we saw earlier this year. You mentioned Marcus Peters and Marlon Humphrey, and I think that obviously the back end of that defense is its strength. And just, again, doing a little bit of a reset, when you're thinking about the defense heading into the playoffs, what would you say is the number one concern that you have, and what do you think is the number one thing you expect them to lean on in the playoffs, especially against Tennessee? 
Yeah, you know, obviously with my, what Mar, uh, Derek Henry has done, has done to them the last two meetings, uh, just kind of bullied them. Um, you know, it's going to start with stopping the run. Uh, but, you know, talking about Humphrey and Peters, they did not play well when they played the Titans in November. You know, Davis and, um, you know, Corey Davis and A.J. Brown won that matchup against those two. And, and, and the Ravens can't afford that. I know Davis and, and, and A.J. AJ Brown's a great player and Davis has played pretty well this year. But uh, the Ravens need uh, Peters and Humphrey to hold up in coverage a lot better than they did. That's still supposedly the strength of their team. Uh, you know, of their defense, uh, you know, the, their corners. And I think Anthony Averitt's played really well in recent weeks. And I think there's a good chance uh, that they get Jimmy Smith back for this game. You know, he came back that. practicing yes, uh, last week, and and I'd expect he'd have a good chance to play. So uh, Wink Martindale's getting a couple of his toys back. Um, so I, I think they should, they should stand a, a pretty good chance uh, in the passing game. You know, you worry about Henry. Uh, but I think the biggest concern, Robert, is overall I, – I, you know, they're so young at inside linebacker and Patrick yeah. Queen has put up some stats. He's looked really good at times um, when he's unblocked and, and he gets a free run at you. It's impressive to watch the athleticism all there. But where the Ravens have struggled and their inside linebacker in particular, when teams run right at those guys and, and you know, linemen are getting to the next level and, and you know, uh, Queen and, and, you know, whoever they're playing there, Malik Harrison, LJ Ford, it's Chris Board. Martindale's used a lot of inside linebackers. When those guys are having to fight through traffic, uh, teams have really been able to get downhill on them. Uh, Patriots did it in a big way. You know, we saw the Titans do it in that first meeting. Um, so they're going to, you know, they're going to need those guys to grow up fast and play physical uh, because at times uh, they, they haven't necessarily passed that test. And then, you know, the Texans are going to run right at them and, and see if they can stop them. It's really surprising when you look at some of the numbers, just stuff you wouldn't ascribe to a Ravens team. You know, they're 21st in EPA allowed per rush during the second half of the season. And when you think of this team, you just think really good run defense, aggressive secondary. And it just hasn't been that over the second half of the year. The idea that they're susceptible to getting run over in the playoffs is just kind of hard to come to terms with. But it feels like we're kind of at that point. Yeah, you know, and I think the second half of the season, partly... Clay's Campbell just hasn't played much. I mean, yeah. he had the calf injury, then he, he had COVID-19. He hasn't been on the field. And that was, you know, they're, you know, when they retooled the defensive front, uh, he was a major part of it. That was the key piece. And, and he hasn't been on the field. And when he has, he hasn't been all that healthy. Uh, I think COVID really hit him hard in terms of energy standpoint. Uh, he should be getting closer back to normal. Brandon Williams missed some time. Uh, you know, very good run stuffing nose tackle. So, I, you know, with them healthy, I like their chances better. Uh, but still, uh, you know, the inside linebackers worry me a little bit when it becomes a real physical grinded out game. Uh, they have to pass the test. I know Martindale has challenged them at different points of the season. I know they expected some of this. You know, Queen's a really young guy. He, well, he didn't even start in the beginning of last year at LSU. So they expected some growing pains there. Um, and, he, you know, he's a little undersized to begin with. But, uh, you know, it is. Their, their run defense has never been a concern or very rarely been a concern over the years. That's what they kind of, you know, start with. Everything starts with their ability to stop the run. Uh, but it's certainly something to watch uh, come playoff time because they've been susceptible to even against the Bengals. They gave up a huge play in the running game. And, uh, you know, you, you never used to see that kind of stuff happen to their defense. 
Is there any other kind of quiet injuries to worry on about on that side of the ball? I know they're getting guys back, but anybody that's banged up and playing at like 75% of himself that we should definitely know about? Um, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I think a guy and, you know, given how they play the Titans run heavy and it's not really his game. Um, but I think a guy to watch is in Um, mm-hmm. you know, they got him for this reason, you know, they, they didn't, they got him because they wanted to be able to create more pressure with their front four. Um, and that really wasn't their strength. You know, Judon's a solid pass rusher, not an elite guy, but they're really struggling, which is one of the reasons, uh, Martindale blitzed so much early the season. Um, but you know, he has a thigh injury. The hope is he'll play. Uh, this week, I can't imagine he's going to be a hundred percent hand. You know, they announced it as a thigh. Those are usually hamstrings that linger a couple weeks. Uh, but it sure would be nice for the Ravens to be able to have him on the edge. Uh, you know, his big play potential. He's obviously seen plenty of the Titans over the years. Um, but he's, his status is definitely a guy worth watching on that defense because they felt like with him in there, uh, that would kind of take their defense to potentially a new level just with his pure pass rushing ability. So I don't want to look too far ahead because I think this is a legitimate contending team and we should worry about what they're going to do in the playoffs. But as you're kind of thinking about next spring and where they might need to retool a little bit and what this team still needs, what are the like, the two or three spots that really jump out to you that feel like absolute priorities for the front office going into next year? Yeah, well, I, I think we just talked a little bit about one of them. They have to figure out the outside linebacker position. Um, they they have six guys, you know, that have been on their roster for a good part of the year, and five of them are all free agents. And and two of them, and Matthew Judon and, and Yannick Ngakwe, are, are you know going to be pretty probably pretty well compensated free agents. Then you add Tyus Bowser, who's really come on, uh, you know, this year, who's had a good year, not a pass rusher, but does a lot of things for that defense. Pernell McPhee, a veteran, and Jihad Ward. So they have to first figure that out at inside linebacker. They have to find that mix. I don't know. The only really guy that they have coming back under contract is Jalen Ferguson, and he really hasn't taken the next step this year, the former third-round pick. So they have to figure that out. Um, And this is every year we, we talk about this. Uh, The Ravens need a receiver. You know, I know they've drafted four of them in the last two drafts. And, you know, I think Marquise Brown, you know, has come on at times this year. And and I think he's a piece going forward. Boykin, I'm I'm less sure about, but I still think Devin DuVernay can be uh, worked in. Then they still have Prochet, who's been mostly returning punts. But they need to find whether it's a veteran um, or, you know, a, a guy, a, another rookie, I would lean towards veteran just because they have four young receivers already. They need to find a guy to kind of lead that receiving group and kind of become a go-to guy. And, and then the other thing I would say is, uh, you know, just shoring up the interior of that offensive line. Our, you know, I think Bozeman's here to stay at guard, but is Macari your, your center going forward? I, it's certainly not going to be Scora, who's a free agent, uh, but then they're also going to find, is Ben Powers that guy, you know, with their how much they want to run the ball that in that offense you can't put enough of a premium on on interior offensive linemen so I think if you can find a huge upgrade at one of those spots that's also an area they're gonna to have to pursue the one guy that I've, I keep coming back to because Willie Sneed is a free agent and that yeah. he's really their slot change of direction space receiver I just think that I don't know if he's gonna get out of Tampa because they have some money 
Chris Godwin on this team, just every time I think about it, makes me excited. He's like the yeah. exact type of player mm-hmm. they need, and he's the best version of that player. That would be amazing. I don't know if that's ever going to happen because I feel like at the very least, he's going to get tagged in Tampa Bay. But that type of guy, I think, is an element of this offense that's missing still, even with yeah. them playing a little bit better that's recently. A, that's a great call, Robert. I totally agree with you. And you know what? I think after taking four shots at receivers – you know, um, and these aren't like late round guys. I mean, Prochet was was a little later round, but these are first and third round picks. Uh, developing receivers has sort of been the Achilles heel in this organization. I mean, it, it's like, you know, it's I think it's one of it's the only position where they haven't had a homegrown Pro Bowler at in franchise history. Uh, you know, Ozzie Newsom was always criticized. God, for it's it. so true. Torrey Smith and Anquan Bolden. Like, that's the group of those guys. It's so true. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they Jermaine Lewis made the Pro Bowl, but it was as a returner. Otherwise, all their success stories kind of Torrey Smith had a good run, but most of the success- I forgot he was drafted by them. That's right. Yeah, most of their success stories have been veterans brought in late, like Steve Smith Sr. and Anquan Bolden and Derek Mason. That's how they've sort of filled that position. So it wouldn't surprise me, given the fact they've already, you know, invested a lot of early draft picks the last two years, if they say, you know what, we're going to pay a free agent receiver. That That's probably the best way, uh, you know, the best way I'd approach it this offseason. Awesome. Jeff, thank you very much. Sincerely appreciate the time. I'm sure we'll talk to you down the road. Sounds great, Robert. Really enjoyed it. Take care. All right, guys, that's all we got. Thank you so much to Barnwell. Thank you so much to Jeff Zarebek for joining us. Please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. It would mean a lot to me. Please subscribe to The Athletic. Buy one, get one offer is over, but it's still only $3.99 a month right now to get your athletic subscription, athletic.com slash football show. I promise you guys it will be worth it, especially heading into the playoffs. I have a piece coming later this week that I'm excited about. Ted Wynn is doing great stuff for us. Our entire national NFL team is doing awesome stuff. Please go check it out. You will not regret it. We will be back tomorrow. Me and Lindsay will do our normal Thursday show. And then Nate is going to be joining us to do some X's and O's playoff previews for each game. Very excited about that. Can't wait to share it with you guys. Until then, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you later. This was the Athletic Football Show.